the Bibles this morning, uh, now that I've got mine, let's turn to Romans chapter 13. And for those of you that may be visiting today, I always like to kind of bring everybody up to speed, and even our own people, because I know, you know, we can forget what we talked about last week. And my job is not only to, uh, what I'm trying to accomplish here is not only to teach you the book of Romans, uh, but show you a continuity of how the book goes together. And we're looking in Romans chapter 13, and the theme of Romans chapter 13 uh, is the importance of our government to God's overall program. We've talked about how that the book of Romans is a, is a book of perspective. Almost every chapter teaches you and me as a New Testament Christian what God wants us to see and understand about something in our Christian life. And, uh, you know, uh, to me, uh, this is a, a book that redefines a lot of things. And it's changed a lot of things in my life over the years. Things that I, I've had to redefine. Things that I once looked at one way that now I had to look at them another way. And last week, we, we looked at the uh, perspective of ministry and where we talked about paying tribute or taxes as we know it today. And... That was an important chapter because, you know, once I laid it out and we saw the models and the biblical principles uh, that were to follow, and then I also showed you how that the issues come up today with different Christian groups who, who think it's unconstitutional to pay your taxes uh, or people who try to get around paying their taxes. And I, I showed you very importantly from the Word of God how that, that is part of God's overall structure when it comes to the government and I showed you the model of that with Christ himself. So, you know, that, that was a very important thing for us to understand. Now, today we come to what I think is one of the most needed and profound concepts in all of the Bible. And I want to take the time to thoroughly explain it today because I think that uh, if there's, if there's one, one area that really spells either success or disaster for the Christian's life or anybody's life, it's the concept that we're going to talk about today. You know, in dealing with people, and, and I deal with people all the time, and, uh, you know, we've had a great influx of people who uh, have come into our church and, and uh, that many of you have, have brought in because of the fact that, uh, you know, they saw the change in your life. And, you know, and that's such a profound uh, concept for some of you to get. Many of you, and I talk to you on a weekly basis or maybe every other week, Many of you, you struggle so much with the fact that you want to be an influence in somebody's life in a positive way for the Lord. And you think that because you're maybe you're not where you need to be yet, or you're still going through discipleship in many cases, or you're, you're coming through a process in your life where you're, you know, you're not quite where you think you want to be yet. And sometimes you get, you get down about that, or you feel like, uh, you know, you're not where God wants you to be as fast as you should be. But you, some of you are beginning to see that how that God will use you wherever you're at. I never want us to get into the mindset. And boy, I think this is a terrible mindset that, that you have to be in some spiritual position before God will use you. The God uses you on the basis of your attitude or heart of wanting being used, not on the spiritual level of where you're at. Now, you may, and we've seen it in the last, you know, last month or so, where maybe you don't have the ability to, to sit down with somebody and, and open up the Bible to them and maybe actually fix their problem or help them with their issue. But where you're at is what you can do is you get them to me and let me do that. And honestly, I couldn't do it if you didn't get them here. 
And, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've seen some incredible things. Even this morning before we even had church, you know, I had a counseling session with, with, a, with a sweet couple that, that really want to make a difference in their life and really want to, uh, uh, you know, really want to make things start to be able to count. And when I, when I start dealing with people, you know, their issue becomes my issue. I think the Bible is very clear in the book of 2 Corinthians on the handbook on ministry of how that when you start to work with people, their problems have to become your problems to a certain degree. Thursday night we had a, you know, and one of the reasons why I enjoy Thursday night so much is because there's no real structure to it and the Spirit of God has a chance to bring out what He wants to bring out. We had a great talk Thursday night about, uh, you know, laying out the format from, from where we want to go. And I was overwhelmed, you know, that was Thursday night. By today, you know, I've had probably 15 or 20 phone calls of people that are saying, you know what, what you laid out Thursday night and what you need uh, in this ministry is exactly what I want to do and what I want to be. And that's overwhelming to me because, you know, that's exactly what we have to do to continue to grow. But in dealing with people's problems, you know, and bringing with issues, um, you know, you've got to, uh, you've got to basically make their problems your problems. You've got, you can't just, you can't deal with people's problems on a nine-to-five basis. And, of course, this is what the great book of Second Corinthians teaches us. Paul goes through there and he talks about the tribulations, the strife, the problems, the heartaches, the, all of the things that they went through, that he went through with them with them. And that's what forged them into a great, uh, strong ministry uh, and brought about, uh, you know, great results for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to find that everybody makes mistakes. You know, when dealing with people, you can't really blame people for the mistakes they make. I tell people all the time, you know, I don't really care where you've come from or what you've done in the past or what you didn't do. I'm not really caring about what mistakes you have made in the past. Now, we might have to deal with some of those things to get you out of them, but at the end of the day, I could care less where you've come from, what you've done, what you've been into, because everybody makes mistakes. The problem comes in when we keep on making mistakes, and remember now, Mistakes come from where? Mistakes come from bad choices. And when we continue to make mistakes or continue to make bad choices that brings us mistakes, and, and, you know, and many times we same ones over and over and over again, that's where the issue of your life can really get complicated. I think understanding not only just, I'm not interested in just teaching you about people's problems and how to fix them, but I want you to learn behind the scenes why people get into the problems they get into. You can't fix something till you know how it got broke, and that's why it's incredible when we talk about the ministry principles, and you're going to get a a, a bucket load of them today as we come down through here, and uh, you know, understanding people's problems. For every, look at it this way. I'm trying to put it into some parameters where everybody can grab it. Look at it this way. For every action, there's a reaction. If you shoot a gun, there's a recoil. See? Uh, The old adage is what goes up must come down. You throw something up, it only goes so far, and then it comes back down. For every force, uh, every action, there's a reaction. We talk about in dealing with people, attitude versus action. Attitude is the, is the thing that starts it, and the action then is the recoil to the attitude. And every decision or choice that we make uh, in life 
I mean, there comes a consequence with that. Now, sometimes it's a good consequence. It's like getting saved, like stopping drinking, like stop smoking, like, you know, there are good consequences, and we could talk about them all day. When you make good choices, sometimes the consequences are, are good choices. But just as with good decisions and their consequences, with bad choices or decisions, there also becomes consequences. And in the Bible now, we know this from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, this will be the Bible, what the Bible calls the law of sowing and reaping. There are seven laws that your Bible is built on. And those seven laws are the laws by which everything in this universe runs. And one of those laws is the law that we find in our own lives, and that is simply the law of sowing and reaping. Bottom line is, for every decision, for every bad choice, there comes a consequence to that. You know, when you start to deal with people and their issues, and my, my, my job is always, and a job of a good counselor will always be to get to the root problem as, as fast as you can. I'll sit down with people, and they'll tell me what their issues are. And my job, one of the things that I will do in the course of time is to show them, in most cases, this is true. The, prob- the thing that people think are really the problems, in most cases, are not really the problem, but they're the symptom of a problem that they don't see and understand. And in dealing with people in its simplest form, what you do with a problem is basically peel back the layers. People's lives are like onions, like a head of lettuce. And what you do is inside of that head of lettuce or that onion, uh, there is, uh, you know, there is a core. And, uh, you know, I, I guess that's a pretty good analogy because I guess you could say the onion would be the very traumatic problems and the lettuce would be the refreshing problems because when you peel back onions, you always cry, see? So that would be the bad side. And when you peel ahead of lettuce, you get a nice salad out of it or whatever. But anyway, that's probably not a good That's not a ministry principle, by the way. But uh, <laughs> my point is this. When you start to peel back those layers, and this is very important. When you start to peel back those layers, I can almost guarantee you that every layer which represents a problem will be there because of a bad choice or a bad decision. And that's simply the way it works. That's simply the way it works. Now, some decisions, some choices we make, seemingly carry very little penalty or consequences. And that can be very deceptive. Because what happens in time is as the little things build up, you get a compounding effect in our lives and everything that we do. Uh, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, it talks about the fact that a threefold cord is not easily broken. What does he mean by that? It means if you take a little string, and you've heard me use this before, if you take a little string and you wrap it around your finger, fingers one time, just a little piece of thread, you know, piece of sewing thread, and you can pop that just like there's nothing at all. And you take that same piece of thread and put it around two or three times and you can pop it. You take that same little insignificant piece of thread that you can break in half, almost break it by blowing on it, and wrap it around your fingers a hundred times. And you know what? If your life depended on breaking that little thread wrapped around your life a hundred times, you're going to die. You know why? Because you've compounded You've taken something that seemingly was very, very, very minute and fragile that you could control. Pop it. 
And then that same thing that you could pop wraps you up so much that the fact that now it's controlling you and you're no longer controlling it. This is really the issue in dealing with marital problems. It's really the issue in dealing with any problems. Think of it this way. Now, Courtney down here in front who's seriously taking notes, Courtney's a swimmer. I marvel, I mean, you got the body of a swimmer. You look like you ought to be an Olympic swimmer. I mean, you're sleek. You just cut through the water. You told me this week when I asked you how much you swim, do you swim a mile a week or a couple times a day week? A mile a week? A couple times a week. Okay, I do too, by the way, but I just want to make sure we run the same thing. <laughs> I don't find that funny at all, folks. I don't see any reason to laugh about that. Courtney's a swimmer. And I've watched good swimmers swim, and they're amazing. I mean, they glide through the water like they've got a rudder. I mean, they can, their bodies are shaped. They've learned how to deal it. They, they, they learn how to sh- deal with the uh, resistance of the water. And uh, they just, when they dive in, they just float along and, just, and, and come back up, and they're great swimmers. And, you know, to, mile, to swim a mile, that's a lot. To, I mean, I don't know if you know how far swimming a mile is, but that's a lot. I mean, uh, do it two or three times a week, that's still a lot. But if you're a swimmer, and a really good swimmer, I remember years ago I, I, I followed this story about, and I cannot think of her name right now, but she, she attempted to swim the English Channel. And the English Channel is the channel between England and France. And I think it's like 40 miles at the, at the, at the closest point. And she's, I don't, can't remember if she did it. She tried it several times. I never, uh, there have been people who have tried it down through history. But I've often thought of myself, you know, in, in my own life and in people's lives that, you know what, when you're a really good swimmer and say you're going to swim the English Channel and, you're, and, you're, and, you, and you start out good and you're moving along and suddenly somebody rows up beside you and puts 10 pounds on your back. You struggle, but you keep going. You know why? Because you're a very good, strong swimmer. But then at the beginning of the next mile, somebody comes up and puts another 10 pounds on your back. And every mile thereafter, somebody puts 10 pounds on your back. Let me ask you a question. You could be the greatest swimmer in the world, but how long will it be before you struggle so much with the weight that is on your back that you wear yourself out and you drown? And, of course, bad decisions and bad choices are like the 10 pounds that get added to our walk. We start out wanting to do right with God. We start out with the best intentions. And then we make bad choices. We make bad decisions. And with every bad decision we make, it adds weight to our walk with God. In fact, I know the Bible talks about a walk with God, but I think it's, I think it's even more than that. I mean, uh, when, we, when we look at the, the, the decisions that we make, the bad choices, each one of them, Each one of them brings us to a place in our life where we have to carry extra weight. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and I know the Bible says that we have a walk with God, but you know what? Um, And I understand that concept, but the Bible says we're also running a race. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great cloud of witnesses. Now, listen to this. Let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with race 
that is set before us. Now, I don't know what you know about English grammar, English structure of sentences or whatever, but it's interesting there when you look at that, that it says, let us lay aside every weight. And then it says, and the sin which doth so easily beset up. It didn't say the, the sin that, see, doth so easily beset It says the sin which. Now, that word which refers back to the weight. In other words, in our race for God, we're in a race. Let's face it. If you're saved here this morning, you're in a race. And based on that passage, you and I are God's child. Uh, we're, we're, we're running a race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says that we're running for a prize. Now, that prize, ladies and gentlemen, will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Roy sang about it this morning. And the Bible says that, uh, that uh, we're, to, we're, we're trying to win that prize. But there's two things that keep us from getting that prize. And the first thing is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, where he says that we are to be temperate in all things. What's temperate mean? Balanced. Temperate means that we keep our lives under control and in balance where we keep the bad choices and the bad decisions to a minimum. Why? Because we're in a race. And every bad choice we make, Every bad decision we make adds weight on us, and just like Courtney is a great swimmer as she was, if every time she did that lap of that pool and she went back, I put five pounds on her back, and she went back and came back, and I put another five pounds on, it would only be a matter of five or six laps before she would wear herself out and she would drown. This is why people have problems and why they get their lives swallowed up and they never finish the race that God calls them to finish. It's because of bad choices and bad decisions that keep adding weight to the race that we are to run. And we are, to, we are in a race. We're a race against the devil. The devil wants to destroy what God's doing and God want, in your life, and God wants to do something. And you're in a race with that. You're in a race against heaven. You're in a race against hell. And certainly, my friend, you're in a race against time. Because right now we know from Psalms 1 and many other places in the Bible that if you and I are saved this morning, the Bible says that we're like a tree planted by the river of waters, that would be God and the Word of God, which bringeth forth His fruit in His season. And when you're saved this morning, in this room under the sound of my voice with the Word of God, and you're absolute know for sure you're saved, the bottom line is simply this, my friend. You now, you now are in a race, and uh, that race is against time because you are in some point of your fruit-bearing season for God. There are, there are Christians who go their whole life and never realize what I'm talking to you about today and never produce any fruit in their life. Then there are Christians who understand exactly what I'm saying and don't care and go through their whole life and never worry about producing fruit. The second thing that keeps us from doing that is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And the Bible says that when a man strives for the masteries, he's not crowned unless he runs lawfully. In other words, it has to be done by the principles of the Word of God. Every bad choice we make, and remember, Life is about choices. This is why God gave you alternatives in life. This is why God allowed the devil to come into the world in the first place. We've talked about it many, many times. Because God gave you a free will. 
And God wants you to choose to do for him what is the right thing to do. But when we choose to do that, the thing that keeps us from running the race, finishing the race, is the fact of the bad choices and the bad decisions that we make. For each one of them add weight to our walk, our race, and uh, in time it compounds to the place where just as our swimmer example, we wear out and we drown. Now all of that is absolutely true. But along with that, there are some bad choices that will kill you so fast, you'll never have a chance to get into this race. These choices are not 10-pound weights. These choices are 200-pound weights. These choices sink you before you get started. Now, let me say this to you, and I, I'm not here to point a, a, paint a picture of gloom today in any way, shape, or form. I'm here today trying to help you understand this great principle that we haven't gotten to yet, but I deal with it all the time. It's probably the number one issue that I deal with uh, in relationships and problems that people have. And if you ever get to the point where you're good at working with people, you're going to find yourself knee-deep in this before you turn around. Some of the things, just to name a few, some of the things that, uh, that are the 200-pound weights that will kill you, very clearly the first one, and there's, there's many of them, but we'll just talk about it. And the first one would simply be marrying the wrong person. Marrying the wrong person, getting out of God's timing, getting out of God's will, marrying somebody who, because you can't wait to be married, finding a boyfriend just because you can't wait to have one. Those are the bad choices that you, and those bad choices don't weigh 10 pounds. Those bad choices weigh 200 pounds plus. Because there's nothing that will, nothing that will stop you from running this race dead in your tracks as getting the wrong help meet in, in what God's called you to do. Bible's talked about that marrying unsaved people is totally out of the picture. Oh, but how many times has that man or that woman suddenly transformed to be a saved person just because you wanted to marry them? And then later on, we find out that they weren't. We find that many times that, uh, and I've told you before, you don't marry a man, you don't marry a woman, you marry the Christ that's in that person. And it takes a while. That's why the Bible says to prove all things. I'll tell you something else that will kill you dead on a doornail. Getting in the wrong church. Most people don't understand the concept of why God gave the church. And we won't go through it again this morning. But boy, let me tell you something. If there's any two things that will, will strip you naked at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be the wrong person you marry or the wrong church and the wrong pastor you link up with. The next thing, uh, and everybody would understand this, would be with some kind of sinful relationship. You know what? You get a person that's promiscuous and, 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 and they do what they want to do and with whoever they want to do it and wind up down the line, uh, they get AIDS or some venereal disease. And you see, there's some consequences by the choices that we make. I mean, if you decide to go 90 in a 55 mile an hour speed limit, you're going to get busted. But it's what? $120? No big deal. Now, after you get five of them, the consequences come up. You lose your license. See? You, you've, 
Oh, you know something about that, do you, honey? Yeah, okay. All right, we won't go any farther than that. The bottom, the farther you go, and then, you know, you do it again, and then this time you got alcohol in your system. And then you get a DWI. That's another set of consequences. And then maybe down the line someplace, you accidentally run through a red light and miss a stop sign because you're not paying attention, and you kill somebody. See, it doesn't seem like much, but the compounding area, if you're not held accountable at some place along the line, once you get away with speeding once, you think you're going to do it twice. You say, how do you know that? Because that's the way I do. (laughs) And you're no different than me. We've all got, we may be different sizes, different colors, and have longer hair, shorter hair, but there's one thing we all have in, uh, in common, ladies and gentlemen. We all have an old sin nature that will try to get around the system every time it can. That's just where it is. And in that, I'm no different than you. Now, I'm not saying God can't fix these things. He can. He can. You married a wrong person, you get yourself in a bad situation, there's always something you can do. I mean, people come in and they'll talk to me and and invertibly they'll always say to me after the end, well, Pastor, Bob, do you think there's anything we can do? I always say to them, you know what? That's never the question. There's always something you can do. I don't care what situation you find yourself in today, big, little, or small, or in the middle someplace. I don't care. Whatever situation you find yourself in, there is always something you can do. The question is, will you do what you have to do? That's the question. It isn't a matter, is there anything I can do? There's always something you can do. Will you do what you need to do? And the prolonged times in our lives where we we don't discipline ourselves and put those things into our lives um, you know what, the longer it takes. In fact, here's a great ministry principle for you, which probably most of you already have, and I tell people this. I said, there's always something you can do, but you need to understand this. It always takes longer to get out of the problem you're in than it took to get into it. Omel Sabaka used to say, my father in the Lord, he said, you know what, sin never leaves a man any better than he finds him. And boy, that's a true statement. That's a true statement. So there are some decisions we make that are there are decisions that carry minimal consequences, and there's some that carry a magnitude consequences. But in all my years in ministry, I think the, the number one thing that most people never recover from, and I deal with this all the time, it will be at the root of almost every problem with person that I deal with. And it is the, it is the concept found in, in, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, where it simply says this, Owe no man anything. Owe no man anything. Now that little verse is one of the most absolutely profound verses you'll ever, you'll ever find in your Bible. And I don't care what situation you're in this morning, because I want to I pepper my sermon this morning, like pepper in stew or pepper in something. I want to pepper it this morning with the concept, there's always something you can do. But I also want you to understand what's beneath this little verse here, which is absolutely profound. Without a doubt, the single issue which usually lays at the center of everybody's problem is the fact that the undisciplined and out-of-control spending we have with our finances. And that is simply a bad choice. Now, I want you to notice something, and we're going to come back here in a moment. 
The verse said, owe no man anything. But the verse did not say anything about debt. I want you to remember that. It simply said, owe no man anything, but it did not use the word debt. And I'll show you why in a little while. Now, now we're in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 is about our government. So let's start with that. I, I don't know if you understand the problems we are in in this country. I don't know if you understand what a travesty our government is to this very principle right here. It's no wonder this country has got the problems it's got. And I'm telling you right now, this is, this is not a time in your Christian life to be straying very far from the principles of God. The changes that are going to be sweeping through this country in the next two or three years are going to be overwhelming. I would safe to say that your children that are four, five, six, or seven, or eight, or nine, and are elementary right now are going to grow up and never know the country that you knew and understood when you were their age. That's where this thing is going. Our national debt is $14 trillion. Now, I don't, after a while, you know, the, the numbers don't mean anything because there's no point of reference to them anymore. Let me put $14 trillion into a perspective. We've got about 800 million people living in America. 800 million people in America. You've got families that are, you know, you've got kids and you've got some of you have more kids than others. But in our country, we're made up of about 800, maybe, maybe more. I don't know. 800 million people live in this country. It simply means this. Every man and woman and child in your family owes a debt of over $300,000. In other words, it's going to take you and your children and their grandchildren paying out $300,000 in taxes to ever get the debt. And that's not the best part. The best part is, you ever see that thing on, I don't know where it's at, but they got a, they got a board that keeps Cali and running up the debt and it keeps moving up. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't now we're at $14 trillion, we're not going any farther. It's going higher every second we sit here and speak. Now, we can talk about it all we want. I found a great word that deals with our government that also deals with most of God's people. It's the word reality. In America, we don't live in reality. The idea that we think that we can spend $14 trillion and come to the point where we can just have unending spending and we can do whatever we want to do and it's going to be okay and someday we're going to get it all back. It's, re it's ludicrous. Unemployment in this country is 12% by the conservative figures that they want you to hear. And some states, it's higher than, as high as 15%. We've seen the stimulus package. We've seen bailouts. We've seen the car industry. We've seen get bailed out. The banks get bailed out. The loan company get bailed out. We've seen with people with mortgages that they can never pay and, and, and the waste of just billions and billions and billions of dollars. People have houses they cannot afford. I've talked with people that I've worked with in, in, in counseling uh, uh, over the years and in the last two or three years and, 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 and people who come in from the outside and most of you don't see a lot of people come in, people send them to me from the outside and never make it to church. I read, a, I read a figure here last week, and I try to stay up on this, that the average house payment in the United States of America run between $2,000 and $2,500 a month. 
Now, if I owed $2,500 a month on a house, I wouldn't sleep at night. I, 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 I would scare me to death. Do you realize that our country is owned by two nations? As we sit here this morning, we have so much debt that we have farmed out our debt to other countries to buy our debt. And right now, China has bought up $160 billion of our debt. Japan, on the other hand, has bought up $190 billion of our debt. They basically own the bulk of this country. And if you don't think that when they have these pony dog and pony shows in Washington about Toyota, and they're concerned about the 35, 40 people who got killed because the gas pedal stuck, and we're going to rattle the saber and make big loud noises in Washington. Let me tell you something. They're not going to push the button any farther because all Japan has to do is call in those bank notes and this country's done. The reason, one of the reasons why he says, oh man, no man, anything, because when you do, you're under their control. And that's where we're at in this country. If I could give you some good, solid Bible advice today... I'd tell you to start building a cuisine and a diet toward Chinese food and learning how to speak Japanese. I read an article the other day that uh, was quite interesting where the guy said in December 7, 1941, the Japanese Empire uh, defeated America with a crushing blow uh, in, uh, in Pearl Harbor. And the, and the crushing blow was delivered by one of the Japan's greatest little airplanes, a Mitsubishi Japanese Zero. And then the guy said, today, some 60 years later, we're still being defeated by the Japanese Zero. It's just a zero at the end of the dollar signs. We're in trouble. And there ain't no way out of it. We're in trouble because we have violated as a nation the great principle that is laid down in the Bible of owe no man anything. And the rest of our debt, Japan has it, China has it, and the rest of our debt has been taken care of by the Fed just printing more money to cover the debt. There's absolutely in this country no responsibility or accountability to any kind of financial structure or any spending discipline. In Washington, D.C., it's a joke. It's called pork. And every bill they talk, they have about pork. If it wasn't, it would be absolutely funny if it wasn't so tragic. And right now it's funny because we don't necessarily all feel the effects of it, but it won't be so funny. I get emails all the time from people, and I, you know, I enjoy them. I got this one last week, and I thought this is very timing. It's a joke. And it's a joke because everybody knows it's a joke. And this thing was sent to me by a friend of mine, and it's all prefaced on the fact the economy is so bad. And I love these. The economy is so bad, I got a pre-declined credit card in the mail. The economy is so bad, I ordered a burger at McDonald's, and the kid behind the counter asked, Can you have fried Ford fries with this meal? I don't eat a McDonald's anymore now, I'm boycott. The economy is so bad that the big company CEOs are now playing miniature golf. The economy is so bad that if the bank returns your check marked insufficient funds, you now can call them up and ask if they meant you or them. The economy is so bad that Hot Wheels and Matchbox stocks are now trading higher than GM. 
<laughs> the economy is so bad, parents living in Beverly Hills have had to fire their nannies and now have the trouble of learning their own kids' names. The economy so bad that last week a truckload of Americans was caught sneaking into Mexico. <laughs> the economy is so bad that Dick Cheney took his stockbroker hunting. <laughs> the economy is so bad that Motel 6 won't even leave a light on anymore. <laughs> The economy is so bad that the mafia is laying off judges. The economy is so bad that ExxonMobil has laid off 25 congressmen. And finally, the, the economy is so bad that Congress has decided to look into the Bernard Madoff scandal. Oh, that's great. The guy who made $50 million disappear is now being investigated by the people who made $7.5 trillion disappear. If it wasn't so tragic and true, it'd be funny. But that's where we're at today. All because of one biblical principle. All because of one biblical principle that was ignored and now has come to the point where it has compounded itself. Owe no man anything has been rewritten now in our country is now you owe man everything. There's two great examples of Bible concepts for us in this, for you and for me, and there's always something we can learn. And the country has made the same mistakes that individual Christians make, and that is simply this. This country never learns anything from history. And as someone gave me, I think it was John Busquette gave me when we started our church history, every time history repeats itself, the price of the lesson goes up. And the second thing, and I've told you this many, many times, and this is where our country has failed, you cannot solve problems with the same kind of thinking that caused the problem. Now, we see in our country arrogance, pride, a lust for power. You know how I know that all politicians are crooked? And this is so true. In time, everything reveals itself, if you're paying attention. There may be things in time that you don't understand that goes on around you, but if you just pay attention and listen more than you talk, watch what happens, listen to what people say, and watch what they do, in time, everything lays it out. You know, I know that every politics a crook. I'll tell you why. Why would you spend $80 million in a campaign fund for a job that pays $80,000 a year for four years? Would you do that? John, would you do that? Kyle, would you do that? Spend $80 million for a job that pays $80,000 a year for four years. And then you get to spend another $80,000 to get another $80 million to get another $80,000 for another four years. Why would you do that? Two reasons. Corruption and power. Two reasons. Corruption and power. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. You know, I'd like to say that, I'd like to blame all this on the, on the government. I really would, because I don't like it any more than you do. But you know what? When it comes to assigning blame, there's another principle we've got to follow here. Jesus said one time to the disciples, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt is a preservation concept. When you want to tan hide, you salt them. 
when you want to preserve meat in the old days, you salt it. It didn't taste very good, but it preserved it and kept it from spoiling. Jesus made the analogy that you and I as Christians are the salt of this earth. The job of a child of God on this planet in any age and dispensation through the New Testament local church is to be a salt to this world that preserves the world from the corruption that happens. But ah, but what did Jesus say? The salt had lost its savor. In other words, even in his time, what was the preserving effect for God in that day had lost its savor. And certainly today in the world that we live in, the church has lost the savor of the preserving thing of the Lord. You see, it's just something like this. When the church goes, the Christians go. And when the church goes and the Christian goes, the government goes. It would be nice to sit here and cast blame at the government and put it all on their back, but that's not true because you and I have a responsibility and accountability to be the salt of the earth and let that savor of salt in your life and my life through the Word of God in your life and through churches preserve the country from falling into decay. And we failed in doing that. We failed in doing that because we've made the same mistakes as the government has. We know, and there's no time, no need to spend a lot of time in this, we know that we're in the Laodicean church period, and the mark of the Laodicean church period, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, is real simple. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and had need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, churches are only what Christians in those churches are. You don't have good Christians in churches that turn out a bad church period. The church period's bad because the Christians in it are bad. The church period doesn't do what's right because God's people aren't doing what's right. And it, it follows all the way down. works all the way down. We have a bankrupt country because we have a bankrupt church. And our bankrupt church is because we have bankrupt Christians. And in all three cases, the country, the church, and in Christians' lives, it's the same issue. We won't learn from our mistakes and fix them. And we won't change the thinking process that caused the problem in the first place. And the issue, I think, in my thinking, I, I, I deal with more in anything else, is that concept. And people who continue to make the same mistake and in time get their lives so complicated that they are out of the race because they're carrying so much weight. And like I always say, there's always something you can do. I don't know if you know this guy or not. Probably most of you do. I really like him. I really like Dave Ramsey. I think Dave Ramsey is a, is a, is a good speaker. I don't know if he's saved or not. He seems to be, but I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd agree with him on everything. I've never heard him talk about the Bible or whatever, but I like his approach. I like his approach, and I like the way that he has a common sense in everything that he does. I like his plan and his layout. And uh, you know what? He says you can have all the money. And he's so right. It's absolutely so true. And I've said it a million times. You can have all the money in the world, but if you're not responsible and accountable to somebody for your spending, then nothing ever changes. I've had people come in. I'm honest to goodness. Over my lifetime, I've dealt with so many financial situations. It's usually at the root of every problem. And what happens was, you know, somebody comes in and says, well, you know what, uh, my marriage is having problems and this and this and that. And you start peeling layers back and you know what, you'll find out at the heart of that 
that was the fact that they got overhead in their spending, they got upside down in things, and then it affects their attitude, and because either one, they don't know how to deal with it, two, they don't want to deal with it, it just adds pressure and weight, and pretty soon, it starts affecting everything you are and everything that you do. And he's so right when he says you can have all the money in the world. And if you're not responsible and accountable to somebody for your spending, uh, nothing ever changes. I mean, I've had people that I've sent to financial counseling that was beyond my scope, and they had to go in and actually work through some processes and stuff. And they rip up all their credit cards, and they put them on some kind of program, and maybe they got 25 different bills that they owe, and they consolidate them all down into one and give them a viable plan how that in what? Five years, six years, you can be debt-free. And you know what? Six months later, two years later, they got another credit card and got another $25,000 on top of that one. Now, the issue is not more money. There never is the issue in most cases more money. There never is. The issue is common sense. You can't keep spending what you don't have. And that comes back to discipline. And let's face it, that's the missing element today. You can't continue to pay out more than you have come in. I mean, that's a discipline problem. You know, and I don't care what it is, dealing with marriage, dealing with your, your family, your personal life, or your kids. I, I always tell people, I always tell them, you didn't get into this problem overnight and you're not going to get out of it overnight. And I always give them a perspective with patience. I always try to have them leave my home with a plan. I always try to get them to see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it is not an express train coming your way. I always try to get them to see that no matter how bad your situation is, there's something you can do. And all I want to do with people when they come over, and let's face it, there's no way that I'm going to, in an hour's time, or you in an hour's time, is going to fix somebody's problem that's been there for 10 years. But I always try to give them a plan and always trying to show them clearly biblical principles that will let them work their waves out of it in time. Uh, you know, I, and I always tell them, I say, you didn't get into this problem overnight and you won't get out of it overnight. Now, do you know why that is? It takes time because you're not really solving the problem. You need to understand this. This is a ministry principle. You're not really solving the problem. What you're doing is changing the thinking that caused the problem, and that takes time. I can't solve your problems, but what I can do is show you the thinking patterns that got you into that mess and then show you the process by which you can get out. But it isn't getting more money. It isn't going to some counselor. It isn't go, it's changing your thinking about what got you into those scenarios. And boy, I'll tell you what, when he gives you that great verse, oh, no man, nothing, that's a great verse. I tell people this. I say, you know what? You didn't get into this problem overnight, and you're not going to get out of it overnight. But even though we can't solve all your problems tonight, we can do a couple of things. Here's what we can do. I can't fix every mess you're in. It's going to take problems. But you know what? There's always something you can do. And right now tonight, I don't care if it's your family. I don't care if it's your marriage. I don't care if it's your kids. I don't care if it's your finances. I don't care what it is. In any given situation, we may not be able to go in and fix every issue you got, but we can, we can start and we can start doing one thing that in time will get us out of it. You know what that is? Stop making bad choices. 
From this point on, folks, don't add any more weight to what you're already carrying. Don't let me take five pounds off next week and you add ten more pounds to it. Every choice we make that doesn't line up with a biblical principle brings about a consequence and adds weight to what we're trying to do. Stop making bad choices and get into an accountability structure that will help you get where you want to get. Whether you know it or not, and I'm sure you do, we as God's people are to be separate from this world. You know why that is? I'll tell you one reason it is, and it's probably not the reason you're thinking. It's because everything in this world is designed to feed your flesh. Everything. Everything. You walk down the mall. We go to the mall to see what we don't have. No, we do. We go to the mall, and it's 50% off. How can you resist that? We go down to the mall, 60% off. How do you resist that? We look at things and 70% off. You know, going out of business sale. I know there's a company in Kansas City that had a going out of business sale up for four years. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, that you and I are to make no provision for the flesh. Every commercial you see, everything, every billboard lends itself to what you and I don't have. Every magazine you read, every, everything, everything you see is designed to appeal to your wants. And in time, my friend, when that is out of control, you know what it does? It breeds a concept of covetousness in our lives. It brings us to the place where we start building our whole lives about what we don't have. Yet at the same time, you know, I got to balance this out for you. When he says, oh, no man, anything, you know what? We totally probably can't file that. I mean, I want you to see both sides of this. When it says, oh, no man, anything... I mean, that's not an absolute rule. That is to be taken with the concept of, of, of where you're at in common sense. Now, if you want to buy a house today, I got news for you. You're going to have to get a loan. So how does that verse apply? In most cases, you're going to want to buy a car. You're going to have to get a loan. Your kids need braces. The braces jar is empty. <laughs> You got to get a loan. Some emergency comes up and, and you, 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 you got to deal with it. So you got to get a loan. It would be better off if we didn't ever have to do that. But let's be honest. In life, we have to do those things. So what I'm talking about here is a balance. Remember, was it last week or the week before last? I told you the story of Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 20. And here was a young man that, that uh, wanted to follow Jesus. And he comes to the Lord Jesus and he says, uh, Master, what good thing must I do to be saved? And the Lord Jesus begins to walk him through the program, giving his little test he gives him, you know. And, uh, and he finally, he, he gave the Lord all the answers on, on, on everything. And the thing was, keep the law. And he went around and I did all of these things. So Jesus said, okay, okay, you did all those things. Now here's the real test. Take all that you have and give to the poor. And come and follow me. You know what the Bible says? He went away sorrowful. You want the rest of that verse? Because they had great possessions. See? Possessions. 
the things we possess, the things that we possess in our lives, that becomes the problem. The real problem is things. Today, the average American, according to a national poll, the average American credit card debt is $25,000 at 18% interest. I've worked with couples in before that were so upside down in their finances that every month, every month, they had two to $300 worth of charges in bills that came in. You know what they were? In overdrawn checks. Now, I've got to tell you, if your setup is so screwed up that you have $100, $200, or $300 of, of, of debt just in the checks that bounce and they charge you, what, $10, $15, $20 for each one? You've got some serious issue. You ain't going to fix that by yourself. That is not about having more money or getting a better job. That is serious dysfunctional dissing problems. But I deal with it all the time. All the time. People buy houses they can't afford. That's what got everybody into this problem with the, with the, with the uh, losing their mortgages. Nobody ever looks around. You know what young couples do today? Here's what they do. And I've had them tell me this. And I just look at them. Like... What planet did you come from? They'll come to me and they say, we, we just bought a new television. Oh, that's great. Because everybody needs, I have no problem with television. I got one. And they said, we got, it, we, we, we got a great deal. We, we paid $600 for it. I said, well, that's you know, probably for a nice TV. That's probably a pretty, pretty good deal. But then you ain't going to believe this, Bob. Well, what am I going to believe? Well, you know what? We got this one for $600, but they had a sale on that if you bought one for $600, you got another one for $300. What a deal that was. It's not a deal if you don't have the $300 to pay for it. There has to be some kind of physical responsibility of looking around, looking behind, looking ahead. I've seen young couples buy a house and they, they come to the place where they're what? $10, $15 right up against their, what they got coming in. And they think, we made it. You made it to the first disaster happens in your relationship. You made it to the first time something happens and you don't have the room to wiggle around because you're right up against the wall. You're always in everything you do. I, it's a principle in ministry. Look around, look behind, look ahead. Know where you're at. Know what your options are. Don't think, they don't want something so bad that you actually say, well, I can do it. When you can't do it. That's what happens. This is a great principle. And for those of you, as we talk Thursday night, that work your way through these things, and we, we get to the point where uh, these are things you're going to have to. Never forget in dealing with people or your own personal life. Never forget Murphy's Law. What can go wrong will go wrong. And may I add to it, it'll be in the exact point that you don't need it to happen. Let me give you a couple of good principles that have served me well over the years. And I gave you this one last week, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, where it simply says, My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And the key word there is your needs. Now, I don't profess to be able to get into your world and tell you what your needs and what your wants are. I really can't. I can only deal with mine. And I, I, my, my rule of life is this. Hey, you know what? If you got the money to pay for it and it doesn't put you in a bind, who am I to tell you what you can't do? You're between you and God, and you can do whatever you want to do. The problem comes in 
when you do it when you can't afford it and you get upside down and the compounding effect. And don't ever forget, no matter what you buy, what you do, remember this, you're in a race. And that race, there are weights. And so he says, God shall supply all of your need. And that verse is a great verse, but it goes along with another one in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. See, one of it deals with the need, and you've got to balance that out with contentment. What are you content with in your life? What am I content with in my life? Now, he's not saying, obviously, he's not saying that all you got to have is food and clothes to be happy. I mean, that's an extreme point. Remember one time when Jesus said to somebody, he said, except you hate your father and your mother, you have nothing to do with me. Now, did he mean that you were supposed to go hate your father and mother? No. What he's saying is the love that you should have for him versus the love you should have from your father and mother should be so drastic that it appears hate even when it's not. It's not saying here that you can only have, uh, you know, food and, and, and clothes and you're supposed to be happy with that. That's not what he's saying at all. But here's the principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Now, here it is. Here it is. And here's the bottom line. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Expedient means wise. All things are lawful for me, here it comes, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The real question is, what controls you today? In most people's lives, their emotions control them, not the principles. In many Christians' lives, their flesh controls them, not the Bible. And the problem is, when you get into a situation where you owe somebody everything, you don't have any say in what you do anymore. Because your life, is, your life is buried and now your debt or your, your, the money you owe controls you. It dictates what you can do and what you can't. And you'll never fix that by yourself. You could win the lottery tomorrow and get $85 million. And three years from now, you'd be, 80, you'd be $900 million in debt. Unless you change the pattern of thought and let somebody help you that produces that, nothing is going to change. I look at some of you uh, young couples in this church, and no, we don't have any, to my knowledge, any severe issues. Uh, the bottom line is simply this. And maybe they're out there, and I don't know it. I don't know. Uh, you know, I only know what the people I work with and what they tell me, and I try to help them through it. But I know this. This will be the single thing that will keep you from ever running that race and getting to where God wants you to go because you can't control it. It controls you. And it will control you in every facet of your life because that's what it's designed to do. Now, I followed a very simple rule in my life, very basic. I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination, not worldly anyhow. I believe the true riches, and I have always thought this was a great thing, <clears throat> in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, it talked about the true riches. That's good casting. I've just never gotten caught up to the things of life. I just never have. Yet I have a really nice life. I wouldn't trade my life for anybody's life on planet Earth. I mean, I look at things that some people think are valuable and, and worth things, and I just don't see it. Yet I'm sure there's things people see in my life that I look at, and they don't see it. 
I was out someplace the other day and looked at a car, you know, parked in one of the places over there, and the sticker on it was $127,000. I can't imagine. I mean, I mean, and this is not a criticism. If you've got a car that's worth $127,000, God bless you, I'm all for you. But the bottom line is, in my mind, the way I'm thinking, I do not understand what I can do with a $127,000 car. Well, you know what? I could never enjoy anything because I have to stand out there and make sure that I didn't hit it. I mean, I'd be into a movie someplace, and I'd say, I'll be right back. You got to go to the bathroom? No, I got to go see if the car's all right. <laughs> I, that's me. <clears throat> Some very important things happened to me in the early part of my life. And my mom and dad were not perfect parents by any stretch of the imagination. But they were good parents to me. And I learned some great lessons from them. My dad was a hard-working man, worked in a steel, steel mill for 26 years before it finally killed him. I remember seeing my mom and dad work several jobs just to, just to get through. And they were, they, were not, they, were not, you know, they were not flagrant with their money. But I learned some great things in their life. It took my mom and dad 20 years saving money before they bought their first house. We can't even relate to that today. We think that if we get married and don't have a house by next week, that there's something wrong with us. It took my mom and dad 20 years before they, they, they bought their first house. My dad drove a 1955 Chevy all the way up to about 1962 or 63. I still remember that old gray beast looked like a big old gray ghost at midnight. I was scared to look out the window because it looked like some big demon out there. My dad used to say, you know what, son, always buy a Chevy six-cylinder because you can always fix them up, tune them up with a, with a set of spark plugs and a screwdriver. Well, that's changed. But I learned some things. I built my house 20 years ago. It's not paid for, but that's all I owe. My house payment's around $800 a month. First house I bought when I moved to Kansas City, I paid $26,000 for lived in it for, I don't know, 15 years, 10 years, 12 years, something like that, sold it for $75,000, took half that money, paid the rest of the house off, took $50,000, put it toward my house. You know what? That neighborhood, it was really nice when I moved in. It's terrible now. I got drug dealers across the street. It's hard for me to walk my dog down the street and keep him from picking up the condoms that are laying all over the street. It's terrible. The only good thing I got for me is that all the people across the street are afraid of Buddy, the big brown dog. They're scared to death of him. <laughs> when I walk out in the deal, they're all out there in the deal. You know, you can smell the marijuana over there, you know. <clears throat> I've been t- I don't take pictures through my telescope anymore. Because I used to do it. I just can't. I, you look you're like you're shocked. I just can't. You don't want to know why I can't? You want to know why? Say you want to know. Okay. <laughs> Because I used to be out there late at night. You know what you got to do? You set that camera up. You get a guide star and you get a beautiful galaxy. And you just sit there. And I started doing that. And one night, I just got weaving. (laughs) There's a party going on across the street. I take Buddy out. Buddy doesn't like, anybody around me, Buddy doesn't like. And he goes crazy. And they're scared to death of it. I can take Buddy out on a leash, and they're all shit out of the deal, and all of those kids would get up and run in the house. I was walking down the street one night, and they were all hell with their smoking, you know, and I said, and, and Buddy's just going crazy. He wants to just get into them, you know. And the guy says, hey, he says, how come that dog's so mean? And I said, oh, he's not mean. I said, he's a police dog. LAUGHTER 
And I said, this is a true story. My wife knows because she's in there saying, oh, boy, we're going to get killed now. <laughs> and, I, I, and he said, a police dog. And I said, yeah. He, I, he says, well, why is he barking over here at us? And I said, well, he's trained to sniff out drugs. You got any drugs over there? <laughs> you know what? I'll live in that house till Jesus comes back. You know why? Because that's only, this that thing, the temporary thing for me. Now, you say, what happens if you get bad? Constantina wire. <laughs> Bob wire entanglements around the yard. I think it's great. I still got some of my old manuals. I don't know how to make landmines out of stuff in the house. I don't have any credit card debt. I hate them. I have credit cards, but I hate them. I don't have any loans. I don't have any car payments. The truck I drive is 10 years old. I bought Barb her first new car last year, you know, uh, but probably 20 years before that. First car we new car I had in 20 years. You know why? Because I, I don't like buying new cars. I think it's, I mean, to me, this is me now, this is me. I think it's stupid to buy a new car for $20,000 or whatever, and then you drive off the lot, and the moment you get your back wheels off the lot, now it's worth $15,000. Now, maybe that's just me. I don't know. Many people live in houses better than me. Many people have drive cars better than I drive. I mean, many pastors have greater things than I have. I mean, uh, I know. I remember a pastor one time that they bought a new office for his couch, and they paid twelve thousand dollars for the couch. Twelve thousand dollars. That sofa out there that we got, I bought at Grandpa's on Fifty Three Fifty Highway, and it didn't cost twelve thousand dollars. Is there anybody's rear end worth $12,000 couch? I mean, I just don't know that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is anybody's ecclesiastical posturonomy worth $12,000 couch? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I've met some of God's people who thought theirs were, but I don't think so. Many people dress nicer than me. I mean, you know what? I don't fit the national status of most pastors, and I don't want to. Some of the greatest drawings that we've had because people get concepts of churches and preachers is when they come over to my house. First of all, no pastor will have you over to his house. He meets you at the office, see, <laughs> with an appointment, see. <laughs> and he's got a silk slick Swedish knit suit that he flies in and out on, you know, and he comes in there. You know what? Come over to my home. My home just like your home. You know what? The dog Otis will probably come up and wet on your leg. That just goes with the territory. I don't know what to tell you. We're trying to get him broken of that, but that's just what he does. I, I don't know what to tell you. But that's just the way it is, you see? I mean, I want you to be, my home is just like your home. I want you, I'm not any better than you. You know, some people would think this is a terrible thing. I was down to Sydney Union Mission four times ago, and I, you know, I just, I could go down there, you know, let you guys do it. I'm sitting down on the floor enjoying who's preaching. I forget who was preaching. I'm sitting back there enjoying, and a guy comes over and he says, hey, look, if you're going to eat here tonight and stay here, you need to sit in a chair. <laughs> I said, I'm the pastor. <laughs> Oh, excuse me, Pastor, excuse me. That's all right. Now, some people would be ashamed to have a pastor like that. That's a compliment to me, see? Because I don't want to be like him. But I'll tell you something. There's a lot of people who have more things in life than I do and have it better off than I got it. But I'll tell you something. I'm more content and happy than all of them put together. I mean, I am. I don't get depressed. 
I don't have anxiety. I don't deal with, I have emotional issues in my life that I have to struggle with. I have a release to my stress. I walk Buddy down the street and let him chase all the people in. <laughs> I don't covet what people have. Man, when I walk into some of your, you see some of the things that God does for God people, I'm happy for you. I don't get into this mindset where I, I, I spy out and stick my nose into your business and say, well, they shouldn't have that. Why do they have that? I, I'm happy for you. I think it's great. I, I, I think it's, I, there's not a covetous bone in my body. You know why? I got a full cup, man. Amen. I got that book. Amen. You show me anything on this planet that, that you got or the whole world's got, put it in one big pile, stack it up to the moon, and tell me what's worth what God's given me out of that book. I feel like Paul over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, as having nothing but possessing all things. I got it, man. I got the book, brother. And that's all I need. I'm not saying that's, I'm not setting myself up as any standard. I just learned some things. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. And I'll tell you something else. The more you have, the less content you are. I've known God's people to live their whole lives built around possessions. And I'm telling you, man, it just, it, it, and they never get to the true riches. And then they wonder why they have the health issues. They wonder why they get the depression in their life. They wonder why. Now, and I'm saying this. this is, and I'll tell you what, this is why God has brought so many of you to a place where you can learn to get past and get to the point in your life that you get the contentment that God wants you to have. But you have to change your thinking about things. You know what my single little rule is? All my life. And I, I live by this. My wife knows. I live by this. My kids know. I never buy anything I can't pay for. If I don't have the money, if I don't plan ahead, if I don't save for it, I don't buy it. I follow that rule all of my life. I keep myself accountable to a budget. And by the way, I run the church finances the same way. We don't owe anybody anything. I mean, uh, you know what? I, Thursday night, somebody asked a great question about the tabernacle. And we went through that thing, and I showed them, and their specific question had to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And I, I, I walked through that thing. And I told you that night, I mean, if you remember, I told you, you know what? If you walked up to the tabernacle, and you looked at that thing from the outside, it looked like any circus tent that you ever saw in your life. There was no spiral on it. There was no church bells ringing in it. There wasn't no big neon flashing signs that says Jesus saves on it. Uh, it, wasn't, uh, it was made out of badger skins, goat skins, and just the skins of tanned animals. And if you'd have looked at that tent and a used armage camouflage net of the period of time, you couldn't tell the difference between the two. Now, I'll tell you why that is. Doctrinally, that tabernacle was a picture of Christ. The outside tent skin pictured his humanity. The inside stuff pictured his deity. But we can take it one step further. People laugh at us because we're in a, how did it go? The last time I heard it, we're in the basement of an antique mall. They laugh at us because we're not a real church, because we don't have a, you know, here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people, you see? 
They probably learned that in the third grade. <laughs> Principle is this. The real treasure of this church is not on anything on the outside. Why, you so foolish that you think that the mark of a good godly church is what you've got on the outside? It's just like the tabernacle. The holy things are on the inside. Doesn't care what the outside looks like. But that's Laodicean thinking, see? That's, that's things. That's being focused on things. So I discipline myself. I set a budget. I plan for the unexpected. Bible says confess your faults one to another. Okay, I'm going to confess mine to you today. Let me share with you. That's the big word today. Let me share with you something that I found out about myself. I discipline myself and wait to save my money uh, and save what I, what I want because the bottom line is I realize that I'm a compulsive spender. I see something, I'll buy it because I want it. Now, it's okay in a little nickel and dime stuff, but boy, that can kill you in the big stuff. So I had to discipline myself. I had to discipline myself. I had to come to the point in my life where I realized that, uh, you know what, if, and here's what I've learned out of it. This is what I've learned out of it. When I save for what I think I really want, by the time I get the money to buy it, in most cases, I really see I didn't need it anyhow. But it works for me. If something's new, we got to have it. New car, new shoes, new whatever. I don't have it. You know, uh, I mean, if I don't have it, I want it so bad, I'll put it on a credit card. You know, six months later, you know what? You get the bill in and you can't even remember what you bought. It's in the corner now. The car's been dented. Uh, it's, it, the purse has broke the strap on it. You know what? I, I mean, uh, it, it just, it, it just, it's the way it goes. I just learned from those things and changed my thinking. There's a great song in your hymnal. A lot of great songs in your hymnal. But on page 204, and please don't turn to it. We're not going to sing it this morning. But it's one of the greatest songs to me that, uh, that I, that, you know, that I, I, just many of them are my favorite. But it's that simple little song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And, you know, these guys that wrote these things, I mean, they knew more about life and trouble and tragedy than we could ever hope to know. But that old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And this is my favorite verse. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, the key word to that is look full in his face. Most Christians never see the full face of the Lord Jesus. Some get a half face. Some get a quarter like the moon. But not many child of God ever sees the full face. Because when you see the full face and you experience the light of his glory and his grace, then certainly, as that song says, the things of this earth do grow strangely dim. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2, it's summed up by saying, set your affections on things above. Now, the reality of all this that, you know, um, the verse says, Oh, no man, anything. When I saw and understood that great truth, it changed my life. Every Christian, every Christian, I understand that concept, but at the same time, and I told you I was going to come back to this, every, and this is where it gets real, real weighty now. You ought to owe no man anything, but every Christian ought to be deep in debt today.
Let's see what kind of debt that is. Let's get a perspective on this before we go home. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 14. Romans chapter 1, verse 14 says this. Paul speaking. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, now that's the only real debt that we should have. That's the only debt we should have. The debt to Christ to preach the gospel and not be ashamed. The problem is we get so caught up with Visa, MasterCard, Citibank, house mortgages, credit unions, hospital payments, car payments, we just never get around to the real debt we owe. And that's a tragedy. The world's debt cancels out for us every ability to pay God's debt. Only God's people could get the wrong Bible, get the wrong church, get the wrong attitude, get the wrong perspective, get the wrong passion, get the wrong purpose, and wind up getting the wrong debt. But boy, we do. The man that taught me that, not only was my parents, but I had a great model in my life. The man that taught me that and taught me the Bible, taught me, and I can hear him saying it now, Bob, when it comes to the ministry and doing the work for God, you'll always want to stay lean and mean. I watched him at 56 years of age when he had everything made in life. He was, had a pastorate at one of the biggest churches in Ohio. His salary was comparable to anybody's. He'd been there 26, 27 years. He had everything that a man could ever want. He had a successful ministry. He had everything that uh, he could ever want in life. He was set for life. He was set in that church. He was set financially. He was set in everything and every way and every shape for the, the winding down of his life. And you know what he did? At 56 years of age, he left everything he had and he went to New York City and he built a church. And he spent the next 20 years of his life <clears throat> doing what in my life I have never seen another man do. He left it all. He left Canton, Ohio owing no man anything. He also left Canton, Ohio without a dime in his pocket. And his motto was, and I hear him all the time, and it forged my thinking pattern in my process because he was the greatest example that I'll ever have in my life of what a Christian should be and how he lived his life. And he was far from perfect. He could give you a royal cussing like you never heard. There were cuss words I never knew existed until I spent some time with him. But oh, he was a man that loved God. And if you'll understand those two statements, you just spend a little time with Moses and God in the Old Testament. He left because he had a race to run. He always used to tell me. And my heart was broken when he left <clears throat> because him and I had dreams of going out and starting a church together. I was his assistant. And I, in my little mind, at my little age, in my little time, I thought, you know what? The greatest thing in the world was for me to spend the rest of my life ministering with him. But God had other plans. 
And God reached down and put in his heart that his race needed to run to New York City. <clears throat> and he went to New York City, not owing anything, not having anything except God. He used to say to me, never get yourself so tied down with the things of this world that when God wants to move you out and send you someplace else, you can't go in 30 seconds or less. That's foreign to us. That's foreign to us today. Foreign to a lot of you. It's foreign to a world of Christianity. We can't even get to that point. We, we look at a guy like that now and we think he's goofy. We can look at a guy like that and we say, oh, that's just him. No, he is supposed to be what you and I are. But what happens is simply this. <clears throat> we got a debt to pay, God's debt. But the devil is so quick and so slick <clears throat> and the compounding effect of the things in our lives that we will not change, the compounding effect of not recognizing that with every decision, every choice we make comes a consequence. And maybe it's not a 200-pound consequence. Maybe it's a 10-pound consequence. But in time, 20 10-pounders make 200 pounds. And the race that God wants us to run, <coughs> we cannot run. My job is to help you get there. It's just that simple. And that's why when I started this, <clears throat> coming to this verse, I wanted to lay out some basic concepts of, 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 of consequences in what we do. The, 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 for every action, there's a reaction. Because all of your life, <clears throat> all of my life, we're going to be surrounded with choices. And those choices will always carry a consequence. Sometimes there'll be a good consequence. Sometimes it'll be a, a minimal consequence that'll build up over time. Sometimes it'll be a major consequence. And let's face it, folks, and never forget this. God saved you for only one purpose. And the more we get focused on the things of this world, the more we lose sight of what that purpose is. And you're here this morning, if you're saved, for one reason and one reason only. Run that race. Run it lawfully. Run it with temperance, but finish the, for the prize. And so when the Bible simply says, oh man, no man, anything. Tremendous verse. And probably the single number one problem from my experience in dealing with people. And I have them come from all walks of life for 35 plus years, walked in, walked out. Some of them do it, some of them don't. Some of them come in and hear it, and like the young man that meant to Jesus, they go away sorrowful because they have great possessions. And it comes down to the fact that we've got a race to run. And the only way you get that race run is to get in a mindset that you quit making bad choices. And then you start the process to reclaim back your life that you now are in control of it instead of all the circumstances controlling you. I'll help you. That's my job. I could sit down with you for an hour and listen to where you're at and give you a viable, workable plan to help you get to the point where you can get out of what you're in, no matter what it may be. No matter what is going on in your world, there's always something you can do. The longer you wait, the harder it is to do it. And the longer you wait, the more chances you won't do it, simply because of the fact the older we get, the less we like change. And that's so true. True of me. I have to fight every day of my life to accept change. 
because I don't like it. I know you think many times, you know, I'm up here on the big Iron Man that just, you know, that nothing bothers and nothing deals with. And that's simply not true. I have to deal with issues just like you do. In some cases, I have to deal with a hundred other issues plus my own. But that's what I get paid for. But the answer for you is the same answer for me. I don't have one set of rules for Bob Alexander and another set of rules for you. We both have to run this race lawfully. And we do it by the principles of the Word of God. And with where we're going and what God is doing and how this thing is going to open up like we talked about Thursday night. And again, I appreciate the phone calls from so many of you that that called me and said, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Let's get this thing going. We will. We will. But it's things like today that you have to get back to the reality. If I'm going to put a championship swimming team together, don't show up on a diving board with a hard hat and 50 pounds of diver's weights around your waist. That's not going to help me in running this race. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you today for the Lord Jesus.